I actually uh, am in, on some days and for some tasks less distracted at home than I am in the office. But but being distracted is part of the fun of coming to the office. A lot of science happens over over coffee because science has to do with conversations with people who are interested in your ideas and who have ideas that you're interested in. You just heard Economic Science Laureate Alvin Roth. I'm Fanny Harjestam, the producer of Nobel Prize Conversations. How to bring different players together in the best possible way is a key economic problem. And here is Alvin Roth's favorite example of this. There's a huge shortage of organs around the world. Only in the United States, there are more than 100,000 people waiting for a kidney transplant. 14 new patients join that list every minute, according to the National Kidney Foundation. A person can donate one kidney and lead a healthy life afterwards. But there aren't that many kidney donors. So what if donors were compensated with money? It is against the law almost everywhere to sell a kidney to another person. Alvin Roth has come up with a term to describe taboo exchanges like buying and selling organs. Repugnant transactions. In 2012, he was awarded the prize in economic sciences for his work in matching markets. In these markets, prices don't do all the work. You can't buy a job at Google or a spot at Yale. And you can't buy a kidney because that's illegal. The host for the Nobel Prize Conversations podcast is Adam Smith. Adam is the chief scientific officer at Nobel Media, an outreach arm of the Nobel Prize. This podcast series is brought to you with support from Riksbanken, the Swedish central bank. So let's dig into US drug markets, the world's migration system, how other professions don't think of economists as people that want to give a helping hand, and what the launch of the Sputnik satellite by the Soviet Union in 1957 meant for Alvin Roth's life. You mentioned that you didn't start as an economist. When you were a child, what did you want to be? So I don't recall having very specific goals as a child, but but I'm a, a Sputnik-era child, right? So around when I was in first grade, the uh, Russian satellite Sputnik was launched and science became a very popular Thing to think about. And so I think that that from a very young age, I thought that my future might involve being a scientist of some sort. Did Sputnik make you nationalistic? Were you old enough to be? Old? Oh, no, I was in first grade. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how, how much understanding <laughs> I had. But my, my older brother, who was four years older, he thought that it would be good if we were scientists. So I think that's how I came to think it would be good if I was a scientist. <laughs> What, how influential were your parents? My parents were both high school teachers. They were educated people, but not scientists at all. Uh, but, but you know, I had a very uh, science-flavored childhood. You know, I, I remember chemistry sets and microscopes and going rock hunting. So, so my parents were very supportive. Hmm. And were you a very bright kid? Um, I was a bright kid. I wasn't well socialized at school, so I, I didn't always enjoy school. But... Uh, But yeah, I was a bright kid. Yeah, because you you graduated at sixteen and went to Columbia. If I well, no, I I think I was older than that at Columbia. Uh, okay, but I got to Columbia a little bit earlier than I would have because I I never graduated from high school and that ended up saving a little time. But it wasn't always obviously the shortest path. And 
You mentioned in your Nobel biography that you spend a lot of time doing karate. Do you still do that? No, I don't. I, I, I'm balance impaired these days. I've had some injuries, not, not from karate, but no, I, uh, I don't do karate anymore. But I did in college, and it was a great thing for me to do. And, uh, you know, it taught me that I could do hard work and, and keep persisting when I was tired and thought it would be wiser to sit down. You didn't always have to sit down. So that, that's, that's a good lesson, good life lesson in general, if you're going to try to work hard at, at things that are difficult. A question that young people often ask or want to ask is how hard do you have to work in order to be successful in a discipline like this? Well, I mean, it's often said and it's true that you have to be quite lucky, but but you also have to work hard. So what I tell students when they're looking for things to work on is that they have to work on problems that they think are important, but that they think are soluble, and that they'll enjoy employing the tools to solve those problems. Because if you don't enjoy the day-to-day work that you're doing, then you won't be able to work hard enough to accomplish all the things you want to accomplish. So I figured out that I was a game theorist long before I figured out that I was going to spend you know, a, a giant part of my professional career trying to design markets and then, and then persuade people to adopt them and implement them and maintain them and, and to help doing those things. But I, I understood that game theory was going to be intellectually fun and and that on days when I didn't change the world, I would still have a good time thinking about the kinds of things I was thinking about. So, So I think it's important to have a good time in your work because you do have to do a lot of hard work and it's hard to work hard if, if the work isn't pleasant. It sounds like you've got a very nice balance with the, the mathematical side and the social side, both on tap, depending on how you feel. Uh, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I've had a, a very satisfying career so far, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to doing more. I have to admit, the, the social side, convincing people that things I think might be good ideas might in fact be good ideas, isn't always in a day-to-day, as, in a day-to-day sense as rewarding as you would like. It turns out getting people to adopt and implement novel ways of doing things that they may have spent their careers doing in other ways is, is not so easy. And... Um, Partly, one of, the, one of the ways I was led to study professionally repugnant transactions is you want to say, why is it so hard to implement changes? You know, what, what is it that, that makes something seem like a good idea to some people and, and not like such a good idea to other people? And so, uh, so I'm interested in that. And incidentally, it's not always the case that uh, everything that economists think of on first thought is as good an idea as we might think it is. Again, you know, the, economics is, is a very human science, so, so I don't uh, disparage the fact that some transactions are repugnant. On the contrary, I, I'm trying to understand that because markets and marketplaces and the economy, you know, these are human artifacts and they're supposed to make human life better and they're supposed to do things that we want them to do. And so we have to understand better not just what we can do but what we, what we want to do. What kind of space do you like to work in? Is there any particular environment that makes you better? So technology has changed that over the course of my career. When I was young, I used to like to come into my office and I would work, you know, sometimes late at night and, you know, sometimes on weekends uh, because my office was where I had my file cabinets and, you know, all those kinds of things. And I was near the library. Uh, But Computers and the internet have changed that, and so I'm happy to to work in my living room with a laptop on my lap now, and I can 
you know, I can connect to libraries without leaving my house. So um, I'm spending many, many, many fewer late nights at the office now. The office, of course, provides some kind of isolation. The living room can be a bit more of a public space. Are you easily distractible? I'm, I'm easily distractible, which is part of the fun of both of these. You know, now my wife and I are empty nesters. So, so my wife, who's also a workaholic, is at home. But in the office, you know, my colleagues and my students come in. So I actually am in, on some days and for some tasks less distracted at home than I am in the office. But being distracted is part of the fun of coming to the office. A lot of science happens over over coffee, because science has to do with conversations with people who are interested in your ideas and who have ideas that you're interested in. Yes, listening to you throughout this conversation, it, it struck me that you get to talk to people in such different disciplines. You get to speak to doctors or people working with refugee problems or whatever it is, but a lovely collection of people to talk to. It is. They're, they're not always easy to talk to or, to or to get them to talk to us. But one of the nice things about being an economist is that since economics is about all the things that people do, we're in a position to learn from everyone. And so I certainly, you know, treasure that I learn about kidney transplantation from kidney surgeons and about medical labor markets from directors of uh, residency programs and uh, about schools from public school administrators. These have all been uh, wonderful learning experiences for me. Let's begin with work. I suppose it would be very helpful to have you define what a matched market is because that's what you work on. When people think of markets, they often think about commodity markets in which prices do all the work. And commodity markets are very important and they require a lot of design. But many, many markets are not commodity markets. Prices don't do all the work because you care who you're dealing with and you can't just make an offer to the whole market at a price that would that you'd be satisfied with whoever answered it. So labor markets are like that. When you offer someone a job, you're offering them a particular person a job. And, and when someone is offered a job, they're offered a particular job. So these are markets where you care who you're dealing with. And you might not be happy to, to hire someone else at the same wage. The wage offer and the job description might be very personal. And college admissions is like that. When, when you're admitted to college, you, you're admitted by particular colleges and colleges admit particular students. So matching markets are markets where you can't just choose what you want even if you can afford it, you also have to be chosen. And because they need this matching between parties in the market, they sometimes require more market institutions to help them to work rather than just the price discovery tools that that commodity markets use. Mm. So you gave the example of labor markets or college admissions. I suppose we're surrounded by matched markets in our daily lives. It's sort of, we, everywhere. we are indeed. You know, uh, the marriage market is a matching market. You can't just choose your spouse. You also have to be chosen. So why do they require special treatment? Well, in a commodity market, if I'm selling 5,000 bushels of number two hard red winter wheat on the Chicago Board of Trade, I just have to announce a price. I'm willing to sell at this price. I don't care who buys. And the person who is purchasing it doesn't care who he buys from because the commodity is sufficiently well-defined. But if I'm trying to marry someone or hire someone or get a job or admit someone to our PhD program at Stanford, I care very much who they are. So I can't just announce a price. This is this is what we're paying for software engineers at 
Google today. Anyone who wants to work at that wage should come. And if, if too many people come, then I'll announce a lower wage and, until the market clears. When You have to have interviews. You have to have application processes. Uh, you have to have letters of recommendation. You have to have campus visits. You know, all the, all the different things we do to get admitted to college or to get hired for work or to marry someone. Those are all part of the market. Those are the institutions of the market that help you find who you want to be matched with. Can you fit it into a model which allows you to understand it better and then influence the outcomes? Well, better is the right word about models. They help you understand some aspects of the situation better. The thing about practical market design, that is about building institutions in the world that help people make matches better, is that you're always building a small institution in a big world. So the model helps you define and understand aspects of that. For instance, when we make labor market clearinghouses, we can model pretty well how people can interact with each other when they are participating in the clearinghouse. We model less well how else they can interact with each other outside of the clearinghouse, what their alternatives might be. And so we're constantly having to model different aspects of those things as they become important. Many of these things, which are just the stuff of daily life, finding a partner, finding a job, fall under the remit of what is broadly economics. Um, So can we just start there with the semantics? Does it matter whether you call it economics or anything else? Well, I think that economists bring a certain viewpoint to many things that can be studied by other people as well. So it, it doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter to birds whether you call the study of birds ornithology or not. But Ornithologists are a community of people who study birds, and economists are a community of people who study markets, but other people study them as well. And you don't have to think of it as a market. You know, there there are many matching markets that surround us now. You know, there's ride sharing, there's Uber and Lyft, and, and, you know, pretty common in here in California, uh, and they match passengers to drivers. There's Airbnb, which match travelers to hosts. All these are matching markets because you don't just care about the price. You care about being matched to a car that's close to you. And it's even harder to describe what you care about when you get a hotel room and Airbnb. You you care about the location, but also about how the pictures look and whether the host has a good reputation. So you don't have to think of those as part of economics, but, but economics is about how human beings interact with each other. So So almost everything we see at least touches on economics and can be Aspects of it can be understood better by thinking about them as part of of the economy. That gives a very human side to economics. It's lovely. I mean, economics is, you know, many people ignoring it completely as a discipline. But what you've just described, it's really the discipline that covers everything that goes on between humans. Well, I think that's right. I mean, you know, it's easy to, it's fine to ignore economics as a discipline, but no one can ignore economics because we interact with each other. you know, I'm tempted to say it's fine to ignore physics as a discipline, but I'm I'm sitting in a chair that, that's holding me up against the force of gravity. I'm in a physical world as well as an economic world. Mm. When you tell people you're an economist and then they're not in any way connected with it, do you think that they are then surprised that you study things that are so much connected with their daily lives? Well, I think the more people are surprised, the less likely they are to continue the conversation and find out. <laughs> um, 
that, that, so it's certainly true that some people, when I say I'm an economist, want to know what will be the growth rate of Chile next year or, you know, or what stocks they should buy. So that's right. So many people have a, a much more constrained view of what economists do. I think it's probably very good for the science of economics to have people like you around, in a way, slightly evangelizing the power of the discipline to touch everything we are. Yeah, you know, sometimes this conversation comes up when people talk about other social sciences and they say, why isn't what you're studying sociology or anthropology or, or psychology? And I think my feeling is all of those, all of the things we do can be studied through lots of different lenses, lots of different windows, illuminate different parts of them. So absolutely, some of the things economists study could also be studied by other kinds of social scientists, for example. And it's a broad church. Everyone should come and study these things. How, how people interact with each other is very, very important. In your case, what is the particular economic tool that you bring to understand matching markets? It's game theory. Is that Talk about it a little bit, please. Well, so, so I, I wrote my PhD dissertation in, in game theory. And in fact, I wasn't educated as an economist. My PhD is in uh, the engineering discipline of operations research. But game theory is very much tied to what economists do, and, and it flourished in economics. Uh, so sometimes people ask me, how did I switch from operations research to economics? And my claim is that I didn't switch. The disciplinary boundaries moved around me, and I'm, I'm doing what I set out to do. And part of what I'm doing is trying to understand not just how markets work, but how they fail, and how we can sometimes fix them when they're broken. And I should be a little careful because I use the words markets and marketplaces sometimes interchangeably. Mostly what my market design colleagues and I get to design are marketplaces. And that's what I meant earlier when I said the things we design are, are small parts of big environments. A marketplace is a, a piece of the economy, not the whole. And, for instance, Uber is a marketplace for ride-sharing. Airbnb is a marketplace for getting guest rooms. And... These are, are not things that just slowly evolve. They would design their, their companies, as is the New York Stock Exchange. So marketplaces are human artifacts, and human beings have been making markets and marketplaces since before the beginning of recorded history. And as economists, as we understand better about how marketplaces help the working of markets, we can sometimes intervene. We can sometimes fix them when they're broken, and we can sometimes help create new ones that are missing. Give me an example of a favorite example of a marketplace where intervention has helped. Well, one of the things I'm working on quite a bit still these days is called kidney exchange. It has to do with making more kidneys available for transplants because around the world, kidney disease is almost everywhere one of the top 10 causes of death. And... Um, the treatment of choice, the best treatment is transplantation at the moment. And um, transplants aren't nearly available enough in large part due to the shortage of transplantable organs. And kidneys are special because healthy people have two and can remain healthy with one. So one of the big sources of transplantable kidneys is if someone has is dying of kidney failure, someone who loves them might be able to save their life by giving them a kidney. But it's a matching market. You can't just take anyone's kidney. It has to be well-matched to your physiology. So sometimes your loved one can't give you a kidney. And what kidney exchange is about is, is saying, let's look at two pairs like that and create a clearinghouse where they could find each other and exchange kidneys. That is, it might be that you want to give a kidney to someone, but you can't, and 
I'd like to give a kidney to someone, but I can't. But I could give a kidney to your patient, and you could give a kidney to my patient. And clearinghouses that do those exchanges have now become standard forms of transplantation in the United States, and they're growing in places like Britain and the Netherlands, and, and they're smaller but growing in lots of parts of the of the world these days. It sounds wonderful. It sounds quite complicated to organize that you have to have everybody sort of ready at the right time and hospitals talking to each other and physicians talking to each other. It is complicated to organize. So it's taken some time here and in the United States, and but it's growing here pretty well. And it's, as I say, in Britain and the Netherlands. Uh, I've recently traveled to uh, Ahmedabad in the state of Gujarat in India, where there's a uh, an excellent hospital, the Trividi Kidney Institute, that, that's doing kidney exchange there. And I went to talk to them about the framework in which it might be expanded to to other hospitals in Gujarat and then in India. And I was recently in China talking to officials in the Ministry of Health about, about how that might happen in China. It's a fascinating problem. How did you become interested in it? It's not, again, normal. <laughs> well, I, I uh, am often asked that question, and the answer is not a warm human interest story that, that I knew someone who was ill, but I came to it through the mathematics. It turns out one of the things economists do is they play with toy models of economy, of exchange, where they take some feature of the usual model and they make it harder and then see what happens. And so there was a, a paper by Lloyd Shapley and Herb Scarf in the very first issue in 1974 of a journal called Journal of Mathematical Economics, where they said, let's think about how you would trade houses if you couldn't use money. And... That's, of course, on the one hand, sort of silly. We use money when we trade houses, sometimes quite a bit of money. But it gave them an interesting exercise, a hard problem. And it turns out one of the things about kidneys is it's against the law almost everywhere in the world to buy a kidney from a kidney donor. You can't, you know, neither in Britain or the United States or Europe, you know, can you pay someone for a kidney? So, Is it legal anywhere? It's legal in the Islamic Republic of Iran where there's a, a legal monetary market for kidneys. But that's the only place, although there are illegal black markets that operate in other parts of the world. But that's the kind of thing where when I, when I was at the University of Pittsburgh and a lot of kidney transplants were being done there and other transplants as well, and I would teach this paper to my students and they would say, but that's silly, we use money to trade houses. I would say to them, well, how about kidneys? And, and then when kidney exchange became logistically possible, uh, that was a natural transition to start talking to our surgical colleagues about actually implementing exchange. And were they surprised to find themselves talking to an economist? They were indeed. It turns out that physicians and surgeons don't automatically think of economists as fellow members of the helping professions. And so it took some discussion before they understood that I wasn't simply going to suggest to them that they pay kidney donors, which that's, a, that's a, another good discussion to have. But the idea of kidney exchange and how to organize it, you know, th this is an idea that had been actually around for a while. But the big questions, as you suggested, had to do with organizing multiple hospitals and many patient donor pairs, making a clearinghouse, making a market. When they understood that, then they were pretty open in the United States. It hasn't been so easy elsewhere, in particular in Europe. Uh, in Germany, kidney exchange is still not legal because of because it doesn't fit in with the legislation they have about how to do organ transplantation. But it's coming to be more and more accepted and uh, around the world, and it's, uh, it's certainly a lifesaver for the people who need it. It sounds as if it is such an obvious 
solution, if you like, although despite all the complications, and could indeed bring enormous benefit. But I suppose it can only happen locally. It can only happen between people nearby in the same country, or at least who... Well, so the United States is a big country, and and we do it nationally, and we we now ship kidneys. But in the early stages, and and I think internationally, uh, if you were going to try to do this, patients and donors would travel. And there's actually great opportunity to do this because kidney disease is is a big killer, not just in rich countries, but in poor countries. And in poor countries, often transplantation and even long-term dialysis may not be available. So kidney failure is a death sentence. But it turns out when when you talk about exchange, what you need is a thick market. You need lots of people because some people some people who need a kidney have difficulty finding one. This has to do with the human immune system and how, how your body rejects foreign objects. So if your body is busy rejecting foreign objects, it might be very hard for you to get a kidney and, and you'd need to be able to look in a database of, of many possible other patient donor pairs with whom you could exchange. And the reason it's going to be possible, I think, to expand exchange between people in rich countries and people in poor countries is that in rich countries, we pay much, much more for dialysis than we do for transplantation, even though transplantation is much better for the patient. It's just not widely available. And so when you do an exchange, you take some If you do an exchange between a pair in a poor country and a pair in a rich country, you take someone in the rich country off dialysis, and that saves enough to pay for the transplantation and pre- and post-surgical care for for the other pair for the rest of their lives, typically. So so I think there's a real opportunity that has so far just been explored in in the smallest way to – of mutual benefit between – rich and poor countries, to get more people transplanted. The mutual benefit one can see, but I suppose there may be a a barrier there that there's a perception that if you're, for instance, taking a kidney from somebody from a poor country and you're paying for it, you're, you're using American dollars to pay for it, even though there's a swap going on, you must have to avoid the idea that it's some kind of sort of organ colonialism or something. Absolutely, absolutely. And indeed, there's there's been some vigorous opposition in that sort, but I think it's it's misinformed. A, a lot of the vigorous opposition has suggested that we're paying the donor in the poor country, whereas in fact what we're doing is inviting them to participate, as an American does, in American kidney exchange with, with no payments being made except to the healthcare system. But yes, it's not going to be necessarily easy to organize this in a way that avoids the the black markets that do exist in some countries, although although this would compete with the black markets, not support them. It would be an opportunity to get a transplant through a, a legal system in the formal medical world rather than deal with criminals in the black market. But one of the things I study is the class of repugnant transactions, which are transactions that some people would like to engage in and other people think they shouldn't be allowed to, even though the other people may not suffer any harm um, when these transactions go on. And some of these transactions are uh, of, a, of a sort of medical nature, like surrogacy. So right now, I'm sitting in California, and surrogacy is legal in California. That is, you can sign a contract with a woman to bear a child for, for you and your, your spouse and have you named as the parents on the California birth certificate. But in Britain, surrogacy is legal, but you can't pay the surrogate. It's not legal to pay the surrogate. So it's a little bit like kidney donation, right? It's legal in many places, 
almost everywhere, to give someone a kidney but not to be paid for it. So in England, that's the story with surrogacy. So, of course, there isn't a lot of surrogacy in England. And California and other places where surrogacy is legal and reliable start to become places where people come for fertility tourism. You know, English people come to California to, as, as part of their efforts to start a family if they, if they can't easily do it on their own. Right? There are lots of reasons why people are infertile, even though they have sperm and eggs that are viable. They may not have a uterus between them. This is particularly true, of course, for same-sex couples. Uh, male same-sex couples don't have a uterus between them, but other people don't also, or have had a pregnancy that was life-threatening for the mother and, and want a second child but can't have a second pregnancy. So anyway, uh, surrogacy is fully legal in California in a regulated, you know, very orderly way. It's legal in Britain, but not but you're not allowed to pay the surrogate. And in places like Sweden, it's not legal at all. And and consequently, Sweden is one of the places that has pioneered uterus transplants. That is, someone without a uterus but who can't engage a surrogate might still very, very much want to have a child and want so much that they're willing to go to pretty extreme solutions. So there are lots of human desires that might form repugnant transactions. That is, transactions that some people would very much like to engage in and other people think they shouldn't be allowed to. Has research on such repugnant transactions lagged behind? Because <laughs> economists, for instance, have found them a little repugnant and therefore have avoided working on them. I think it's lagged behind because it hasn't really come to the attention of economists. There's, there's quite a thriving literature in philosophy about how maybe markets have gone too far and some transactions are and maybe ought to be repugnant. But economists have to deal with this. You know, if you're a practical market designer and you're thinking about supporting a market or banning a market, you have to understand the social support that markets need and, and sometimes get and sometimes don't. And also the social support that bans on markets need, right? So there you are in Britain and it's against the law to pay surrogates in Britain, but it's not against the law to, it's not against the law in Britain to come to California where surrogacy is legal and have a surrogate child and repatriate the child and have started a family. So one thing that people in, you know, say lawmakers, policymakers in Britain have to think about is what's being accomplished by the law that says you can't pay a British surrogate because that law is not necessarily preventing people from having surrogates. It's preventing poorer people from, from having surrogates. It's expensive to come to California. You don't have to stay for the whole term, incidentally. I mean, you come and go. But just as just as a market needs support to work effectively, bans on markets need support to work effectively. And of course, we see that not just in markets like surrogacy, which some people may support and others not. We see it in markets like narcotic drugs, you know, heroin. No one thinks that anyone should use heroin. It's just not good for you no matter what. So around the world, we have laws against it. But here in the United States, we had 60,000 opioid deaths last year, opioid overdose deaths. So our ban is not working the way we would like it, but we've sort of designed the illegal market with, with the full criminality by the way we try to ban it. And, and one of the things a market designer can ask is, okay, we, we wish that there were no drug addicts, but there are. Maybe we should be thinking about redesigning the market to treat addiction more in a medical way and less in a criminal way, and maybe that would reduce some of the bad, bad effects that the current illegal market has. So so I think it's a really important thing for economists to study 
repugnance and and which markets get support and which ones don't and which bans get support and which don't. In the United States now, we're in the process of seeing marijuana be legalized state by state. You know, I think the majority of Americans now live in a state where it's legal to, at least in some circumstances, consume marijuana. And part of the story there is we had a blanket ban that just didn't get much public support. So it was a law that was not very effective and you know, all the questions about regulation and taxation that you can do with legal markets, even if you are sorry that marijuana will be available, like tobacco is and like alcohol is, you might prefer to have it run in a regulated commercial environment rather than in a criminal environment. Absolutely fascinating listening to this. There are so many um, areas where this is the case. And another one, an old chestnut, where things seem to be going perhaps in the reverse direction in, in the US at the moment is abortion. Abortion, right. That's a complicated one. I, you know, abortion is complicated because a lot of the strong opinions about abortion are not whether some, not just whether someone is entitled to have one, but, but about the child, right? I mean, if you think of the fetus as a citizen with rights, then, then you have a different view than if you think of the fetus as, as someone who could possibly, you know, become a person in the future, but isn't a person now. So that's a, that's a, that's a complicated question. But what I thought you were going to say is, Another complicated one that's been around for a long time, another complicated question is prostitution, right? How do we feel about sex workers and what's the relationship between voluntary sex work and sex trafficking and how should we think about about those things? So in most of the United States, with the exception of a couple of counties in rural Nevada, uh, prostitution is illegal. But that, of course, doesn't mean that there's no prostitution in the United States, whereas in Britain and in lots of places in Europe, prostitution is legal, which doesn't mean that it's respectable, but the ways authorities are dealing with it aren't through the criminal law. So once again, the question is, what are we trying to accomplish with these laws? Could we accomplish them better with different laws? How about the the rights of sex workers, you know, voluntary sex workers? How about the protections needed to people who might be victims of sex trafficking. These are all market design questions that probably we need more evidence about before we can give really good answers. But one of the ways you get evidence is by experimentation. And so we should be learning from from the different experience around the world in how things like surrogacy and prostitution and kidney exchange, for that matter, are uh, regulated and supported and, and what the consequences are of those different approaches. You mentioned experimental economics. I suppose sometimes it must just seem that there are bewilderingly large numbers of variables that you just can't contend with. But it is possible to do experimental economics. Absolutely. So I use experiments broadly the way most people do. But as you know, I've also spent a lot of time trying to develop economist tools for doing experiments in the laboratory, that is, for very carefully controlled experiments. And for some aspects of market design, experiments are a a very powerful tool because you can, in the laboratory, set up markets, marketplaces for the same kinds of goods, but under different rules. And then you can look uh, very carefully at how the rules matter. And, And one kind of example to think about is cattle are widely sold in auctions where the the auctioneer starts at a low price and then goes up to a higher price. But 
if you ever visit the fascinating flower market in the Netherlands, in Alsmeer, they have what's come to be called a Dutch auction. The, there, there's a clock with a price that descends. The, yes. the prices start high and they go lower and lower. Now, I've, those, always, I've always thought those sounded absolutely terrifying. I've never been to one myself, but I, it, heart-stoppingly difficult to know when to come in. Well, but it's also maybe heart-stoppingly difficult to know when to drop out in in an ascending (laughs) auction. So they're pretty similar, especially when you think about the sealed bid versions, right? If another kind of auction is you write down a number on a piece of paper and that's your bid. And that that gives you the same problem that the Dutch auction does. You have to decide what number to write down. You have to decide what number to to jump in at. But – the the point I wanted to make about experiments is you could try to learn about these different rules, ascending and descending, by, by looking at cattle auctions on the one hand and flower auctions on the other. But cattle and flowers are different. So if you found some differences in the auctions there, it might be due to the fact that flowers smell differently than cattle. Um, but in the laboratory, you can sell the same things both ways and start to observe how the auction rules impact the marketplace outcomes. So experiments are powerful. Uh, There's also a whole lot of policy-oriented experiments called randomized control trials now, which are a lot like clinical trials in medicine. You know, you have some policy that you think might do a good job, but you you can't roll it out immediately for everyone or, or you don't want to. And so if you're going to just look at a subset of the population, you might choose them randomly and compare them to, to the treated people, to the not treated people, the people treated one way to the people treated another way. And that also gives you evidence about what is the effect of, of the policy that you're implementing. So experiments have become important in economics. What are the challenges that have not been addressed in matching market research so far, or which is the challenge that you are most hopeful that it will be applied to soon? Well, so those are different questions. Um, <laughs> I mean, right, markets are all around us, and, and economics is still a very early stage science. So which things we organize you know, as commodity markets, which things we organize as matching markets, which things we organize through centralized marketplaces, and which through decentralized, sometimes very decentralized marketplaces and, and systems of transactions. We still don't have great answers to those things. When you look at particular matching problems that seem to be working, particular matching markets that seem to be working badly now and, and we'll have to learn to, to make work better, one of the ones that comes immediately to mind is uh, refugee resettlement. There's uh, a Somali-English poet who who has a lot, and her name escapes me right now, but but she has a line that says, no one puts their children into a small boat unless the sea is safer than the land. And when you see people trying to get to Europe in these small boats and things like that, it's pretty clear that, that our system for for granting asylum to refugees and in which countries they will get asylum is is not working well at all. And if we think that large-scale human migration is going to continue, then we're going to have to learn to do that better. And of course, it's a matching market because refugees can't just choose necessarily where they go. They they have to be granted asylum. But neither can countries completely control their borders, so we can't just choose who comes to us. And we're not doing a good job of it now. So I would like to see the the whole migration system of the world and, and with, you know, most immediate emphasis on, on refugee resettlement given some thought, especially if we think that over the next century the sea level might rise and, and that will cause quite a bit more human migration. Uh, there's a little bit of work done on, on things like this. In, uh, in England, there's a 
Alex Tatelboim and his colleagues in in Sweden. There's uh, Tommy Anderson and his colleagues. So we're we're starting to see some work on the on the easiest to grasp parts of refugee resettlement, which is where and how should you locate refugees in your country once they have been granted asylum. But the big unaddressed question yet is the the system of granting asylum. And it's an expanding problem. I mean, thinking of another quote, the. Nobel Peace Laureate Mohammed Yunus said, as long as you have poverty, you're going to have migration. Rich countries cannot sit by and just watch other countries be poor. And, of course, one of the most effective ways to help poor people is to let them move. You know, there, there's internal migration as well. Raj Chetty and his colleagues, recently at Stanford and now back at Harvard, are looking at migration patterns in the U.S. and where children thrive and where they don't. So... Absolutely. Migration is is one of the things you can do for your family, and the world has to think how we want to deal with that. And, and in many respects, migration is a repugnant transaction. That is, some people would like to move, some places would like to uh, receive migrants, but not everyone thinks this is a great idea, and so it's a complicated political issue all over the world. And a last thought. I was just wondering whether all this... Um, analysis of of matching markets has made you better at handling your own at-home matching markets, the family life and the sort of conversations that have to be had all the time. Well, I remember years ago in some interview, someone asked me how I had come to understand that my wife and I would be a good match. And um, I explained that she had told me. And that's how I knew. Uh, so, uh, no, I don't think that understanding the architecture and design of matching marketplaces necessarily makes me better at navigating them. Now, I do have institutional knowledge about a bunch of different matching environments that I that I can give advice on. I mean, I, I went to college, and I have two children who went to college, so I was able to give them advice on, on college admissions and how to navigate that. But that's the kind of institutional knowledge that everyone has who who goes through these institutions. This podcast was produced by Phil Tinterland for Nobel Media. The host was Adam Smith and the producer was me, Fanny Harjestam. Music by Epidemic Sound. Make sure to visit the official website nobelprize.org for more in-depth content on the laureate's awarded work. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.